Have you ever been surprised by something that you really should not have been? A bit like this gratuitous baby photo here. Have you ever been surprised by something that really you should not have been? I do remember one particular moment where this happened to me and I, I really do pray and pray and ask that this not happen for you. It happened in an exam uh, where I went in, fully having prepared a set number of topics and I might have told you this story before because it lives large in my memory and I turned over the paper and I was committed to answering any question that they threw at me on this particular topic and so I turned it over, looked quickly, yes, there is a question there and I read it and I was very surprised. The question went along the lines, according to this particular author in this particular book, what were the most important things that he had to say? And I thought, wow, I really prepared this topic and I, this whole area, I read a lot of stuff, I'm ready to go. That is the one thing I am not ready to go with. I've not read that book. But I really should not have been surprised because in the very final lecture of the course, the lecturer had said possibly three times, you really should read this book. You really should read this book. It would be a really good thing to read this book. And I just thought, oh yeah, whatever. And I got in there, turned out the and went, I really should have read that book. <laughs> Consequently, since I was thoroughly committed, I wrote an answer anyway. And I'm sure I gave the marker some sort of light relief from reading the other serious responses as they read basically what was a piece of creative writing from my head about what this author might have said if I'd ever read their work. And I can... Anyway, yeah. Sometimes we're surprised where we really shouldn't be, right? I should have been able to read the signs and know what was going on there. I just missed it entirely. Did you notice as we read that little section of the Scriptures, the very last couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel... His account of Jesus' ministry and life and his teaching, his death and his resurrection. Did you notice there was the Jesus I told you so moment? The bit where they were all surprised but they really should not have been. If you've got your Bible there, you can see it there. Great if you could look on with the person next to you if you don't have your own. Luke chapter 24, we're looking at verses 36 through to 53. I've called this sort of reflection on God's word priority Jesus and it'll become clear while, while I've called it that as we go on but I've got a couple of different headings and first the first heading I want to look at is the reality of Jesus' resurrection. That's the first thing that Luke make, makes clear to us here. The reality of Jesus' resurrection looking from verses 36 through to 43. Notice how it starts. It's always a good lesson when you're reading the scriptures and you jump in a particular point. Sometimes the very words you read communicate to you that really there's a context here you need to be made aware of. And that's one of those situations. Verse 36. While they were still talking about this, and immediately you sort of go, well, who's the they and what's the this, right? You've got to need to understand a little bit of the context to know what's going on here, right? What's the situation? I'll give it to you in brief. If you flick back to Luke chapter 18, you just flick back a few pages, Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through to 34, let me read it for you. Luke 18, 31 to 34. Jesus took the twelve aside, that's his closest followers, and sold them, we're going up to Jerusalem, everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man, that's himself, will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles, they'll mock him, they'll insult him and spit on him, they will flog him and kill him. And on the third day he'll rise again. 
I just hear the next verse. Luke records their response. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. So Jesus saying, we're going up to Jerusalem and let me tell you what's going to happen. Everything that was written in the Old Testament about me is going to happen. I'm going to be rejected, killed and then rise on the third day. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And what you'll see in the intervening chapters as we come up to Luke 24 is that's what happens. What Jesus said would happen as written in the Scriptures, that does take place. He is rejected, he is killed. And they have had no idea, right? If they just listened and understood back in chapter 18, they would know what's next, right? What's meant to happen on the third day? He's going to be raised from the dead. But when you read the account, they were not expecting that. So after Jesus has died and they've laid him in the tomb, you read in chapter 23, verse 56, that some of his women friends went away to prepare spices for the third day, for the day after the Sabbath. What were they preparing spices for? Not to celebrate his resurrection. They were were getting the spices ready to anoint his dead body. They assumed he's going to be dead. On the third day, he'll still be there in the grave. We will go and fulfil sort of Jewish ritual custom and anoint his dead body with the spices. That's what they assumed was going to happen. And when they turn up on the Sabbath day, they see the empty tomb, the grave clothes, and, and two angelic messengers who say, what are you looking for him here for amongst the dead? He's risen, as he told you. So they run back, find the other disciples and they say, Jesus, his body's not there, he's risen. They relay the message. But the other disciples, they regard it as nonsense. Nah, that's ridiculous. I mean... We saw him die. They were not expecting this at all, despite being forewarned. And so, Peter, one of the disciples, he takes himself off to the tomb. Goes and looks in, sees the empty grave clothes, the empty tomb. And Luke says, he went away wondering what had happened. It is a mystery that they do not get this at all. It is a complete surprise. And then Jesus appears to two of the disciples who had taken themselves off on a bit of a trip out to Emmaus. Jesus appears with them, walks with them, talks with them. They suddenly recognise who it is while he's breaking bread with them and then they rush back and tell the others, oh, we've actually seen him now. And when they, they get back, they say, oh, Peter's now seen him too. Jesus has appeared to Peter as well. And that's what they're talking about. They're gathered there. Some of the disciples have met this risen Jesus. Others have just heard this report. Others just know that the grave's empty. They're talking about these things. Chapter 24, verse 36. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And their response was, Oh, that's right, you told us this would happen. No, they still don't get it. Start, they were startled and frightened. Think they're seeing a ghost. They still don't realise, of course, this is what he told us would happen. So Jesus then has to demonstrate to them that he really is alive. Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. That is, he's saying, look at the marks in my hands and feet, the marks where he was crucified, which clearly identifies him as Jesus, the Jesus they knew and loved. Look at my hands, touch me and see. And you'd think, well, that's got to be good enough, right? They touch him, 
even that's not good enough, it turns out. Even that's not sufficient. Verse 40, when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. That is, I take it what they're going is, as they're touching it, going, this is too weird. This is too good to be, you're alive? Like that's, that's a, they, they still didn't really get it. Even because they're so amazed by just this astounding thing that's happened. And so Jesus gives them another demonstration, yet another one. He says to them, do you have anything here to eat? They give him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and he ate it in their presence. And he demonstrated, yep, look, I'm the real deal. I've got a stomach, I've got a digestive tract, I can eat food, like it doesn't sort of just fall to the floor because I'm a ghost. I'm a real deal, human being, raised from the dead. It's clearly me, here I am. He demonstrates the reality of his resurrection. Now, frankly, being raised from the dead, if I can just be a little bit crass for a moment, being raised from the dead is a pretty excellent party trick and it's a pretty brilliant ending to Luke's Gospel. Like, if you could be raised from the dead, just like, that is amazing. But that's not why Luke has finished with this demonstration of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. It's not just, whoa, that's a big, that's, that's amazing. It's, it's actually because Jesus' resurrection vindicates his identity. Jesus' resurrection is God's big tick that Jesus was who he said he was. All the way through, like we saw in Luke 18, Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. Everything that's written about me is going to be fulfilled. I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to be raised. So when God does actually raise him from the dead, that is God saying, yep, you know, he spoke rightly. He spoke truly. This is the plan. This is who you are. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one at the centre of all of God's plans for his world. So the resurrection is not just about an amazing defeat of death, though it is that. It's actually about the demonstration, the proof of Jesus' identity. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this particular painting. It's a very famous painting. It's not actually of this moment in Luke's Gospel. It's from uh, John's Gospel, where Thomas, it turns out um, that one of Jesus' closest disciples, Thomas, wasn't there at this particular moment. And when all the other disciples say, hey, Thomas, you missed out on a great... Jesus appeared, he, he doesn't believe it. And so the next time Jesus appears to them, Jesus says to Thomas, take your finger and put it in my side. Is that real enough for you? Okay? It's really me. If you were there, if you were in the room that day, you could have touched his hands and touched his feet. He really was raised from the dead to be alive now. And you could have touched him. That would have been great, wouldn't it? I mean, a bit gross, yes, but awesome to be there in the physical presence of Jesus. Why do you think Luke has recorded these details for you and for me as readers? I mean, we know Jesus went through a three-year public ministry. We know from the beginning of the book of Acts, which is Luke's sort of part two, of the story, that Jesus appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days. Jesus appeared not just once, but over a period of 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God, teaching them about what was to happen next. Why did Luke pick these two things to record at this moment? Why did he pick these out? 
Well, it's not actually a mystery. We know why. If you go right back to the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, verse 4, Luke tells us why he's written these things, why he's chosen to record these things. He says, it's so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught about Jesus. You've been taught that Jesus is raised from the dead. You've been taught that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one at the centre of God's plans. Luke has recorded these particular uh, incidences where Jesus invited the disciples who were in the room to touch his hands, where he ate the fish. He's recorded these for you precisely because you could not be in the room. He wants you to have the assurance that they had. So he's relaying to you the experience of the eyewitnesses. So when you say, I don't know, like it just seems... It seems outlandish. It's like, really? Is he really alive? Is he really raised from the dead? Like, can we be sure? Luke says, look at what happened. Look at, look at what the eyewitnesses experienced. This is what it was like. This is how real it was. So you can have the assurance of what you've been taught. Jesus is alive. The grave has been defeated. He really is Christ the Lord. And God's given proof of that by raising him from the dead. The reality of the resurrection. Now, as I said, what's clear here though as we go on, we come to the next point, is that there is a particular reason that Jesus has been raised. It's not just a great end to a story, though it certainly is that. What's apparent here when you read this chapter is God had a plan. There is a plan at work here. Have a look with me at verse 44. Jesus then said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you, which we've just read back in Luke 18, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the Psalms and the prophets. Do you get it yet? He's saying, like, come on, I told you this is what would happen and and now it's happened, right? Everything that was written about me had to be fulfilled. It's not that he's he's not saying... I told you I would die and rise again. He's saying, I told you what was written about me, namely that I would die and rise again, had to happen. He's pointing back to the Old Testament scriptures and saying, God had a plan. That plan is coming about. That's why I've been raised from the dead. Because God had a plan. He has a plan. It's as though, if you like... Here is all of human history and it is driving in because God has a plan to the particular moment where Jesus dies for the sins of the world and where he is raised from the empty tomb. The whole of human history is driving into this particular moment and we know that because Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, God has said, this is the plan, this is the plan, this is the plan. And so Jesus said, this is the plan. And it's happening according to the plan. It's as though, if you like, there was a massive, great, big banner written over that whole section of human history. From the very foundation of the world through to the resurrection of Jesus, there's a great, big banner and it has the plan up there. What's the plan over that whole history? The plan is, God says, 
the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is coming. That's the plan. That's what, because by the Christ coming, God is going to fulfil his purposes for the entire of creation, right? That's the plan. Now, I don't know if, if you think of life having a plan. Um, sometimes what people like to do is they like to give eras of human history a name. I'll just give you a few out of sort of the last hundred years. The swinging 60s. Apparently in the 60s, people were like monkeys and they swang from trees. <laughs> the swinging 60s. The 70s. The daggy 70s. Or alternatively, it means the same thing, the disco 70s. Identical words. The bad 80s. Bad hair, bad fashion, fluoro colours. What was that about? Oh no, they're back. Um, anyway, the, the nothing 90s. Frankly, no one can think of anything very significant that happened in the 90s at all. Oh, hang on, except you were born. <laughs> Yes, that's right. You were all born in the 90s. The 90s, that most fabulous, maybe the pinnic, maybe the greatest decade of human history because you were brought into the world. Yes. Uh, the nervous, the nervous noughties, 9-11. And all that came from that, the nervous noughties. And I don't know what it is now. I, I, I haven't heard anything. I don't know what we are in now. I guess we're the teens. Are we in the teens and the, the something teens? I don't know what it is. I don't, it's too early to tell maybe. But we like to put these banners over particular eras of life. And maybe you've got a banner operating over your life at the moment. You're thinking, I'm in my peak 20s. And then it's all death after that. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what you think, but we, we tend to sort of have some sort of vision of the time we live in, a time of life. I'm saying that God had a plan. He has a banner written over life. And may I say, if it's a choice between your banner and his banner, I know who's got the power to make that banner come true. And it ain't you. Right? If God, the living one true God, the Father of Lord Jesus, has a plan, that's where history is going. Right? That's where things go. And if he has a plan, then we should probably orientate ourselves according to that plan, yeah? That would make sense as his creatures in his world when he's got the power. So my question to you is this. If this was the banner, the plan, leading up to the death and resurrection of Christ, that the Christ is coming, from then, as we go on through human history, as we come to 2012 and onwards, what is the banner What's the banner over your life, over my life? What's the banner over this era if God has a plan? Now, it's not a mystery. Jesus actually tells us right here. So, moving on to point three, the result of Jesus' resurrection. Look with me from verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures that Jesus is not making up this plan, it's what was there revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah, the Christ, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and then here it is, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all generations beginning at Jerusalem. What's the banner? 
the to proclaim Jesus the Christ. For and I'm just going to summarise what he says there as calling for repentance and for the forgiveness of sins as salvation. The banner over this bit, according to Jesus, is that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in Jesus the Christ's name to all nations. That's the banner. That's the plan of God. That's the phase that we're in of God's universal plan. That repentance and forgiveness of sins be preached in Jesus' name to all nations. Okay? That's the big plan. Now, um, this, as he says there, it was sort of, this is written in the Scriptures, it's not novel to Jesus. I'll give you a reference you can look up later which says it very clearly. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. Isaiah 49, 6, you can see there that the plan was always that the servant of the Lord would be not just salvation to the Israelites but would actually be a light to the Gentiles that salvation may come to the very ends of the earth. There in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. So you can chase that up later. So I want us then to think about, as we come towards, towards the end, I want us to think then, if this is the picture that Jesus paints, that the result of his resurrection is now this next phase of God's plan, the proclaiming in Jesus' name of repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations is happening, what implication does this have for your life? I want us to try to think in detail about this in the final sections of this public meeting for this year. And I've got a four, four observations, four observations, all to do with this plan. First is this. Let's think about the priority of God's plan. The priority of God's plan. See, you and I tend to live life with all sorts of agendas. We have, if you like, multiple parallel agendas. We run with all sorts of agendas. Often determined by um, goals that we want to have, right? We say, I want a secure future, so therefore I need to get a degree. I assume that's why you're here at uni, because you're bourgeois and you want a comfortable life. Right, And so you've come to get a degree so you can get a good job so you can have a secure... That's your agenda, right? I assume also you probably are hoping that you might have your life, when you're able to look back on it, we'll say, I, I, was, I was deeply engaged and satisfied relationally. Maybe you're looking for that special somebody in your life. You've got that... That's another agenda, right? You're running with that agenda as well and therefore you carry out all sorts of activities to achieve that goal, right? You've got some other agenda, right? Well, maybe not yet, but let me tell you, within a year you will, if you're graduating. If you're about to leave, within a year or two years, you will have this agenda. Your agenda will be, oh, I need to start putting money into a super fund, apparently, and apparently I need to start now to secure my retirement. So you'll start having that as an agenda. We run with all sorts. And then we think, oh, but of course, beyond that, there's, all, of course, eternal life. So I need to have Jesus as well. So I've got all these multiple parallel agendas running in my life. What I'm suggesting to you is if God has an agenda that runs over all of our lives, if this is what he is saying, this is why you are still here. That's true, isn't it, actually? Because why has Jesus not come back yet? Is it because Jesus is just kicking back and sort of watching YouTube videos and just hasn't got off his backside to come back yet? 
Is that what it is? Is that why he hasn't come back yet? He just hasn't, hasn't got around to it? No. Why has he not come back, according to the Scriptures? Because God is patient with his creatures, not wanting any to perish, but they will come to repentance and through faith have life. Right? The only reason Jesus has not come back is because of this plan. Because this is what God is doing. So I'm saying, yeah, we've got lots of multiple parallel agendas, but maybe this agenda really needs to have the priority. Now, what shape then would that have if that had a priority in your life? That's what I want to explore a little bit. Now, I'm trying something here, uh, flying a little kite for how that might work. And if you're a science engineering person, you might love this. If not, just listen and don't look. Okay, now, I was thinking about what shape should this plan, right, have in our lives? And I thought, okay, well, let me think about that biblically. I know that from the Scriptures... As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're to focus, we're focus in, our main concern is the Lord Jesus, right? Jesus is Lord. The EU t-shirt says so because it's reflecting the scriptures, right? That's, so we are Lord Jesus centric. But also, since this is the plan, repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations through his name, we are salvation focused, right? Because that's God's plan. That's what he's doing. However, because we believe all the scriptures, we don't just pick that verse and say that's the only verse that there is in the Bible. We read that verse in the light of all the verses in the Bible and I think if you do that, you see that actually the scriptures are creation affirming, saying this is God's world and he has created human beings to work in the garden, in inverted commas, to work in his world, to enhance its fruitfulness. That, that is our divinely created mandate. And I think that, because it's right back there in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, I think that stands for all time, for in this age, until Jesus comes back. That's part of it. So, we know, I think we need to affirm all three things. Okay? The problem, friends, the pro- problem comes when we drop one of those three. So, for instance, if you're saying, yes, I'm, foc- I'm centred on the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm salvation focused but you don't affirm creation, you end up saying work has no value to God. That's what you end up saying. Salvation, that matters, but work has no value for God. And I actually think that's not true to the Scriptures. When you go with two and not with the three, you get a problem. But also, if you say go with, oh, yes, I want people to be saved and I'm, I'm, I'm on for the world. And so you talk a lot about those things but you're not focused on Jesus. I think you end up with a legalism or a Christian sort of moralism that you try to impose on society where it's all about the sort of life you lead and the sort of deeds you do and what sort of good person you are rather than the great and godly person that Jesus was and what he has done for me. So you end up with a skewed gospel. I'll give you another example here. If you're sort of centred on the Lord Jesus and affirming of creation, but you sort of, you don't have salvation as a focus, you don't have God's plan, then you end up with a social gospel where Jesus just wants us to do good in the world. And if I do something, if I give you a cup of water, then effectively I preach the gospel to you, which I don't think is true at all. Because repentance, and forgiveness of sins need to be proclaimed to all nations in his name. 
We need to hold all three. You know, I sometimes hear, and I just thought I'd reflect this, I sometimes hear in the EU, because we're reacting to some of these other ones, sometimes I hear people say, look, we want to affirm creation, we're focused on the Lord Jesus. Sometimes I hear us getting a bit soft on salvation focus. We need to keep God's plan as the priority, even as we affirm the rest of his creation. Hold those things together like that. Okay, so I'm going to quickly whiz through the three other P's. That was where I wanted to spend most of the time, just sort of play that out for you. That's the priority of God's plan, the people of God's plan. Notice what Jesus says here, that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name where? To who? To all nations. Just a simple point, right? If this has to go to all nations, then we as Christians must be xenophilic instead of xenophobic. Xenophobic means hatred, fear, fear of strangers. Xeno, strange, the foreign, the different. We need to be lovers of those who are different to us. If we are going to embrace this plan, you can't just want to share Jesus just with those who are like you, whose company you like. The plan is that this good news will go to all nations. So we have to be lovers of those who from different races, from different backgrounds, different cultures, who, who do life very differently to you because we have embraced the Lord Jesus and his plan and his offer of salvation to all nations. We've embraced that. So we need to be xenophilic. Finally, also, oh sorry, second last, how then are we to participate in this plan? Does, does this plan mean that you, if you're about to graduate should not become a teacher, lawyer, doctor, dentist, economist, money maker, person for a bank, whatever you're going to do, should you just become an evangelist? Should you just become a full-time gospel worker? Is that the logical, straightforward implication of this plan? No. No. Because I don't think anywhere in the Scriptures does it say every Christian is to do that. We are all to have God's plan as our priority. But how you go about participating in that plan is a function of many things. Function of the gifts God's given you. Function of the opportunities he's given you. Function of your own maturity in Christ. A function of what other responsibilities God has given you in this world in terms of family and other things. So what I did is I thought, well, what does the New Testament clearly teach for every Christian in participating in this plan? What it teaches for every Christian, I think, are these things that every Christian is to be praying for a door open for the proclamation of Jesus. We're all to be prayers in this mission. We are all to be ready to answer for the hope that we have in Christ. We are all to be supporting proclamation financially so that the work of proclaiming Jesus can go on. And I think the thing that we often leave out, right, the thing we often leave out is this, that actually as Jesus' followers who have been told to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, we are called to a life of voluntary sacrifice. So do you have to become an evangelist? No. Do you have to become a Christian worker? No. But God does give you the opportunity, maybe. If he's given you the gifts and he's given you the opportunity and you know the need, he doesn't lay it on you and say, you must. He says, you can. Voluntary sacrifice. 
give up those other good things because of the plan, maybe. Voluntary sacrifice. Okay, and finally, and I'll finish with this, the power for the plan. Where is the power in all of this? Jesus makes it abundantly clear. He says to them, you are witnesses of these things, verse 48. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city till you've been clothed with power from on high. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, which when you read on in the early chapters of Acts, the Holy Spirit does indeed. Jesus pours it out after he sends to the Father, pours it out on his followers, and they all proclaim Jesus boldly. And you might think, well, that's great for them. They were the sort of the apostles, the mighty ones. But read on in Acts chapter 4, and the entire church say, Father, empower us to proclaim you boldly. And what we read then is the Holy Spirit filled them all and they spoke with boldness. The power for our participation in this plan, whether it's speaking, whether it's power for prayer, whether it's power for voluntary sacrifice, the power comes from the very Spirit that Jesus pours out into us who are following him. Here is the banner over the rest of your days, whether you're graduating, whether you're staying. Praise that God has given us the power to be participants as his people in his plan. Now, I think we've got some friends who are going to close in prayer for us. Is that right? Yeah, let's do that now. Thanks. Please join with me in prayer. Dearest Father, We thank you for watching over all our efforts this past year to spread the truth of your love and grace to our campus in the power of your Holy Spirit. Pour down your blessings on those who have surrendered so much time and strength, all in light of our humble goal to bring people to your throne of grace. We thank you for the leaders and for those who work behind the scenes. May they feel the reward of your love and our gratitude. Thank you for your guidance without which our efforts would be futile. In the remainder of the year, let us surrender everything to your will to forsake all other agendas and worldly, useless treasures and to focus on the race that you have set for us in prayerful submission. In simple faith, we offer our lives to you. Grow us in the knowledge of your love this summer so that we may come back refreshed and joyful to continue your work in proclaiming you boldly next year. We want to shine in your spirit's light so that more will open their doors to receive your incredible peace, that they will come to repentance and have life. Let those who set out into other parts of the world next year do so in courage and eagerness to be servants of the great servant king, wherever you lead them, participating in God's plan. Equip them with readiness and voluntary sacrifice. Finally, Father, draw near to us. Teach us righteous indignation against all temptations. Turn us from self-deprecation, knowing that all our hope is in you alone. Protect us from pride, from jealousy, from hate, from self-satisfaction and from all the schemes of the devil against us. We lay all of this at your feet, so turn your face upon us and hear our prayer of thanks and so much thanks. In Jesus' name, Amen.